Welcome, everyone. It's Tricia from the Plastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation. Welcome back to our podcast series. We're coming to you today thanks to generous support from individual donors and our corporate partners, including Celgene. Today's guest is Alice Halk. Alice is our Director of Professional Programs, which means she works with doctors, nurses, researchers, and other health professionals in the bone marrow failure disease sector. We will find out today how what she does impacts the lives of patients all over. So please welcome Alice. Hi, I'm so happy to be here and explain how we work with the many health professionals who interact with our patients and their caregivers. They're a key audience for us and a partner for us, so I'm happy to explain a little more about what we do with all those doctors and nurses and physician assistants and social workers and everyone else that we'll talk about today. That's that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge. I know you work with all these health professionals and medical professionals, so you understand each of their roles in caring for each patient with these rare diseases. So let's think a little bit about the patient journey. Uh, when a, the, a person is first diagnosed, who is their first health professional that they would make contact with in one of our mar- marrow failure disease sectors? Typically, it would be a primary care physician whom they've seen and perhaps they've had some of the starting symptoms of a bone marrow failure disorder and some tests that have been done indicate some concern. And so that is commonly the first person, but if they've been if they have other conditions, other health conditions, or they see other doctors, sometimes it's it's picked up by others besides the primary care physician. And then the most likely referral is to a specialist, typically a hematologist or a hematologist oncologist, which we refer to as hemonks for short. <laughs> but uh, they they would then be the specialist that a patient is referred to for to to find out what's what's happening with their their tests, why the blood counts are off, why uh, some genetic tests may be indicating something that is of concern. So, so they go from their primary care to a hematologist or a hemoc, um, and they get some testing done. What kind of testing do they usually get? Well, they're... The, Commonly, you know, blood tests, I think CBC is the, the medical, the, the short term for it, but uh, uh, blood counts and, and other lab work. But increasingly, it's the genetic testing that is really an indicator of some of the mutations that might be impacting the disease, the development of the disease, or whether they have a predisposition to a certain condition. So genetic testing is is becoming more and more common, and that's where we also in, begin to interact with pathologists who interpret those tests and can are also part of the healthcare team that begin to work with our patients. So, does it does it matter um, what kind of pathologist? their samples get sent to? Well, ideally, it's a hematopathologist who is very familiar with blood diseases. These diseases can be very, very difficult to diagnose. And sometimes it can be 
frustrating for patients that they may have to go through some of these again and again, like a bone marrow biopsy, which is not a comfortable procedure. But unfortunately, the 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 way that pathologists look at the 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 slides that are that they have to view and other means of diagnosing these diseases, they can be very changeable. And sometimes it depends on the type of sample they get and the the bone marrow itself. And it so as frustrating as it can be to have to have some of these tests done repeatedly, sometimes it's necessary to really get a definitive diagnosis. And that's why much of the education that we do for professionals is reiterating how important it is to get that diagnosis, to work with pathologists, to understand how these diseases are are diagnosed both in the lab and, and you know with genetic profiling, so that they're getting a complete picture and that the patient gets the best diagnosis as soon as possible. Wow. So so then, who's the next person that a patient would see after after They've seen their primary care, and then they've gotten a further diagnosis from uh, a hematologist or a hemonc, hematology oncology specialist, or from an oncologist, which is, as we know, cancer specialist. Yes. Then, then what happens next? Well, then, uh, then they really start to see a, a broader team of professionals, and we refer to all of these professionals that interact with our patients as our, our our partners in patient care as we are partners to them because at every step along the way it's an opportunity to educate patients about their diseases about why they're having certain tests done about what the what their symptoms mean you know what's happening along the way increasingly there are nurse navigators who help the patient exactly as their name sounds, navigate the process or the system. It could be helping with insurance questions. It could be helping with managing appointments. It could be helping with trying to make sure that they, if they're coming for an appointment that they can get their lab work done on the same day or see a, a social worker or or try to deal with other services at the same time so that their time, the patient's time is respected and that it minimizes their travel time and the number of appointments they need to to attend. So there are nurse navigators. That's a relatively recent development, and it it varies where those are. Sometimes they are in academic centers and larger medical centers, but sometimes uh, private practices have them as well. So it it varies, but that's a, a relatively recent position for patients to work with. Uh, there are also physician assistants, many of whom are specialists in the hematology oncology field, uh, nurse practitioners, and they the, these uh, are what we call mid-level providers that are not physicians but have uh, certain responsibilities and certain training, of course, to to work with patients. They can be key uh, patient educators, key contacts to help explain the disease. They may have a little more time to spend with patients and their caregivers than, than the physician does. So they're, they're playing an increasingly important role in, in interacting with patients. And then, of course, there are nurses. There are social workers that may get involved if any kind of social support is necessary. Uh, and even insurance case managers may have a role to play because of 
man, if they have insurance, if patients have insurance questions or wonder what's covered or need referrals, you know, all kinds of questions that unfortunately come up with insurance coverage. And so sometimes case managers are are involved in, in the team as well, although they're not in the practice or the hospital, but they're involved in that way. Wow. I think I could have used a insurance coordinator for myself in the past, <laughs> but uh, I'm really glad that that's part of what most people experience when they're diagnosed with these rare marrow failure diseases. Um, is there a difference about who's going to be interacting with you according to where you live? Well, there could be. Um, certainly, academic medical centers and, and others that are like specialty centers that, that see many more bone marrow failure patients would have a, a, a more specialized team of people that are, that are accustomed to some of the issues that bone marrow failure disease patients encounter. In uh, more rural areas or, or smaller private practices or smaller community-based hospitals, they may not have a, as many people reaching out to them, but they, it's still important to take advantage of you know, any partnership you can have with your healthcare team. And if, if patients are not satisfied with their care or, or feel like they're not getting enough information, of course they can turn to AAMDSIF for information, but also to uh, Lee Clark, our patient educator, or we can connect them with, with other uh, medical professionals elsewhere to, for a second opinion or to know if they should be seeing a specialist or getting answers in addition to what they may be getting in their more local area. Oh, that's great. You've reinforced everything that Lee said in our uh, previous podcast, in Podcast One. So uh, I appreciate your, your going over that again about how it's so acceptable and encouraged to get a second opinion and to also um, take the initiative to take a role in your own care. That's that's great. Thank you so much for that. And absolutely, it's it's necessary for the patients to if they feel that they don't understand something that they're being told to ask questions of their providers, but, but seek out other sources of information, reliable sources like AMDSIF or uh, their provider, or maybe their specialist providers might have more detailed information just because of having more experience working with these diseases. The, if, um, if someone is seeing a, a general hematology oncology practice they may not have seen many bone marrow failure disease patients because these are rare diseases. And especially if you're, if you're in a more rural area, those odds are even further diminished that they may have worked with patients like this. So it's really important that, they, that patients reach out in some way to connect with other patients or with other medical providers for more answers if they feel like they're not understanding what's happening with their disease management. So you, um, I, I like how you keep talking about understanding your disease management. So disease management, that's a term that I'm not familiar with. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? Well, more and more um, you'll hear medical providers talking about uh, patient-centered care. And you would think that that's a given. Of course, it should center around the patient. 
but it's much more so now they're trying to involve the patient in decision-making. They call it a term of shared decision-making where they explain what some of the treatment options are. Now, some people defer to the, the medical team's judgment, but it's important for that team to communicate what the options are and maybe why they're recommending a, cert- a certain course of treatment or explaining the risks and benefits clearly because that's very important for patients to understand. And I, I'm so impressed with how many professionals now are, you know, they talk about what are the treatment goals for the patient. And it may be different depending on what the patient wants in their, in their quality of life. So, for example, a patient may want to see a, a grandchild's wedding or or take a trip with the family, or, you know, there's there may be some event that is really important to them. And that needs to be communicated with the healthcare team because they can adjust the the treatment options sometimes to accommodate that that goal for the patient. It may uh, mean they, they take a different uh, uh, number of transfusions, for example, or their or their medication schedule can be adjusted, or it's one course of treatment that would give, that would enable them to to uh, be more comfortable for a shorter period of time reaching that time goal, as opposed to maybe a treatment they that may be may have more side effects and limit their their travel or their ability to enjoy a certain event or something coming up, uh, and that's that's important for the healthcare team to know that it, it, what the goals of treatment are for the patient. So they can they can actually be flexible around what's important to a patient. In, they, to some extent, they not, certainly not for try. Everything. Yes, yes, uh, they 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 can they do what they can, and uh, but again, it's that communication, and it's very important for the the patient to ask questions, but also that the healthcare team is clearly explaining their their treatment options and what's involved. And of course, there are other factors too. It could be their the degree of their insurance coverage. It could be the distance that they need to travel if they if they have to be coming for transfusions or other other types of treatment. It could uh, it could affect their you know their 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 support system if they don't have a caregiver who can drive them back and forth without you know uh, missing work time or other factors like that. That's where another member of the team comes in, and that's a, a social worker. Oh. Because often they they are they they can assist with services that might be available for the patients or really talking with them about the support that they have at home as well as their their medical support and other much broader psychosocial issues their you know their their spiritual uh, life their their uh, their psychological state. It can be very upsetting to have a chronic disease or, you know, one of these rare diseases where people don't quite understand what you have or you might look fine, but you're going for all these appointments and you're tired or, you know, they don't understand the side effects. So social workers can be a really key component of the team, of the healthcare team as well. Wow. I, I didn't grasp that there's so many people that can be so involved to like be a partner in the care for the patient that they're all 
working together on behalf of the patient? And ideally, that is the case, that they are working together, that that they communicate as a team. And uh, again, in, in larger institutions, that's more common, but that's where a patient or their caregiver can intervene if they feel like their their providers are not communicating. <laughs> it's important that they they let them know that there are other people involved with their care and that they they should be aware of that if they if they are not already. So so sometimes do do patients take a printout from one person who's involved in their care, one care partner and take it to another so that they can because for whatever reason, the two are not communicating as much as the patient would like? They could. And also, you know, electronic medical records, <laughs> they, they sound like a, they should be shared and easily accessible, but unfortunately, they, they sometimes are not. So it can't be assumed that every provider in your life, and, and particularly if you have some other... Uh, comorbidity or in other words another condition a heart condition or a, or diabetes or some other health condition where you're seeing another physician who isn't part of your MDS or a plastic anemia or a PNH uh, care team but they have to be involved because of some other health condition that you have so that and that's where it's really important that patients also keep um, they can use whatever method suits them it could be a notebook or you know, uh, copies of their their medical records, or an app, or some some uh, system of their own that they keep track of their information as well, because that's always a help in case there are questions along the way, and you you have your own information and it's and can ask questions about it or share it with providers who may not be familiar with your particular situation. Oh, you know, we have we have done something that I thought I was going to avoid this time. We have talked about diseases by their initials. And can we back up and go through the terms um, MDS, PNH, and AML just a little bit? Just refer to them. Just say that the whole, what these diseases are. Sure. Myelodysplastic syndromes, that's MDS for the acronym, uh, acute myeloid leukemia, which sometimes is, uh, sometimes MDS progresses to AML. Uh, PNH is paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Anaplastic anemia is <laughs> sometimes, sometimes the initials for that are are AA, but that's more in a medical term. You don't see that too much in. Um, in, in real life, language. Right. in real yes. life, you don't see it abbreviated like that because right. obviously there's many other things that are have that abbreviation. Right, that's great. Um, so we are. Oh, there's one more thing I wanted to ask. We we had t- have had some discussions in the office about the role of palliative care, and I wonder if you could kind of. Um, flush it out for us because I think people use that term palliative care to mean a lot of different things. Can you explain what health professionals usually mean when they use that terminology? It's really a, a, a general term that is used for easing the the pain or discomfort of a patient. And it, it can be used referring to end-of-life care, 
but it's much broader than that, and it it can be used along along the way of of a disease progression or just disease, disease management. It doesn't mean that if you're seeing a palliative care specialist that that your disease is worsening. It might just mean that there are ways that they could work with you to ease your symptoms, work with you on on fatigue or some of the other side effects that you're experiencing or dealing with some of the psychosocial issues that might be challenging for you. So palliative care is, is a range of uh, care provided by, sometimes it's a social worker, sometimes a nurse, but there are many people involved in helping deal with your condition and helping your comfort level along the way. So, so if I'm understanding you right, please correct me if I'm wrong. Something as simple as having a reaction to a medication that causes nausea mm-hmm. and then getting an anti-nausea medication to help um, stop that queasiness, is that would that be some an example of what palliative care could be? It could be. Sometimes that that might fall under the category of supportive care because it's it's related to the overall care of the patient, but uh, palliative is more in line with uh, with uh, pain management. So the example you gave, it, I mean, that's certainly a discomfort having nausea. So it it kind of depends how you look at it, but. Uh, but palliative care nurses and and social workers are specialists that you'll find in more in um, academic medical centers or larger mm-hmm. hospitals, um, and they just they really focus on that aspect of your care, of your care and your overall well being, and it's certainly a wonderful resource to have right, and to right. take advantage of if they are working with you. Well, that, that kind of takes some of the scariness away yes. from the word palliative, because, you know, what comes up in my mind is something very critical. But palliative and, and supportive care, it might be mm-hmm. called different things at different locations? Possibly, or, you know, it, it is all supportive care, but it, uh, it, it just might take a different different direction in some places rather than others. And some of it depends on how many specialists there are right. in a particular facility. Uh, some, In some cases, nurses and nurse practitioners and social workers wear many hats. So they're dealing with supportive care and palliative care. But in larger institutions, there might be actual specialists in that. Okay, so I don't have to be scared from these terms then. If I'm a patient, they're just this is just part of normal taking care of me if I'm a patient. Yes, and hel- and helping to cope with the disease, both physically and mentally. It's not just, it, of course, they try to do what they can with the physical symptoms, but, the you know, it it's a difficult thing to be dealing with some of these diseases, and it's important to that, that they are paying attention to your, your mental state and addressing any Anxiety, depression, uh, worries about your family. Sometimes patients are worried about the burden that's being placed on their caregivers in, in addition to their own uh, conditions. So it's just important that these that patients understand that there are these other professionals, part of the healthcare team, that can help them with some of these issues. And they should not be shy or reluctant to ask about that kind of care. So they've... So the the health and medical professionals 
are ready to give them that care when they ask for it because they've been trained? Yes, and more and more are in our educational programs and just in general, it is becoming increasingly common to see the patient voice included, even in high-level scientific presentations and and conferences and, and programs like that. They are more and more uh, including the patient voice. It could be an interview with a patient that they that the the speaker has has treated. It could be uh, just uh, you know uh, various perspectives of patients who uh, who can express the the point of view from their side. So, Alice, I know that the the foundation AMDSIF and you in particular are involved in providing professional education to these care partners, care providers, medical professionals, health professionals all across the country. Can you tell me just a little bit about how you do that? I mean, are you going all over the country with with a with a program that you present or are you doing it all online or are you going to conference? What are you, what are you doing? Well, we do a, a bit of all of those things that you mentioned. Um, our goal in providing education for health professionals is, of course, to keep them up to date on the latest information on these diseases because even, even for the specialists, these are still rare diseases. And so they may not be able to keep up with uh, the literature and the the presentations and the conferences on all of these. But if we make it easy and convenient for them to to stay up to date, that's a big help to them. And of course, it ha- ultimately helps uh, improve patient outcomes that we want to see. The other reason why we do the professional education is to remind them. The, the physicians, the nurses, all of the care team that we as an organization, AMDSIF, is here as a resource and a partner for them. And that it's extremely important that they can connect patients with us, that we have services for patients to, you know, to offer to patients and the caregivers, and that uh, we're, we're a reliable source of information. The ideal situation for us is if a patient is with their healthcare provider at whatever level, primary care, a specialist, whoever it may be, that they refer them to our foundation for information, for support, for attending conferences, for learning about the diseases, because that indicates that we are a, a trusted, reliable source of information. It can be very overwhelming for patients to, you know, who, who learn, get their diagnosis or the suspected diagnosis and they start to look it up on the internet, and it, can, and it can be frightening. There can be not well-vetted sources of information or not up-to-date sources. And so when healthcare providers refer patients to us, because they know that we're a trusted source, that's really important. And that's a- another reason why we provide the professional education, to remind them that we are here as a a, a support for patients and a very reliable, trustworthy source of information. And, and then the ty- I'm, to answer your question about the types of programs we do, uh, it ranges everything from live programs to webinars to print materials. So uh, 
an example of what we do. We, we just uh, recently participated in the American Society of Hematology Annual Meeting. And that's a gathering of, on average, 25,000 hematologists, oncologists, and, and other related allied health professionals and others related to the field attending, and, and they present the latest research. And most importantly for patients is that we do what we can to report on the key information that was presented at ASH that they should know about. So, for example, with the symposium, we recorded interviews with most of the speakers and asked them to explain the key points of their presentations in lay language for patients to understand. So that's so we, we were educating professionals, but we also asked those speakers to interpret it for patients and what the key information is that they need to know. And then later we'll uh, have a webinar where we'll have a couple of, of physicians talk about the the key points for patients in all, in all of our disease areas and also produce a written lay language summary of the of these key uh, research findings that were wow. re- reported there. We'll have the the interviews posted on our YouTube channel and then there will be announcements about the the webinar uh, that will be a, a I think we call it an ASH update or or research update from the American Society of Hematology meeting. And that's where, and, and that'll be usually late January, early February is when we try to, to get that out. That's that's great. And I'm going to put in a, a plug for the uh, signing up for our email list so that uh, patients who aren't on it will, will su- subscribe, which you can do through um, our website, to get onto the email list to be aware of these updates because we will announce across multiple channels when they're posted to YouTube and to the website. So just just a little bit, something from me about how they can access it. And in addition to these professional, the big conferences, we have a few of our own every year where we'll work with a an academic center usually to present a, a smaller scale symposium on the, that addresses most of our disease areas where we bring in expert speakers. And that's a way that we try to get more to the community-based physicians and uh, allied health professionals to, to update them on the latest in these disease areas because they may not be able to get to some of these larger meetings or it's just more convenient for them to come to something a little closer to home. Well, that's great. That's great. I, yeah, I want to know if I'm a, if I were a patient, I would want to know that my doctors and nurses had the latest information on my diseases. And actually, mentioning that, <laughs> there is a role that patients can play in in that because oh, really? we understand that sometimes because these are rare diseases, patients will uh, feel as if maybe their providers don't know much about these diseases and not really the fault of the providers, it's very difficult to keep up with all the possible diseases and uh, conditions that people can have. But uh, we very much appreciate when patients take the the, uh, the initiative to share some of our materials with their providers if they didn't know about the diseases or about our foundation previously. At our patient conferences, sometimes we uh, we have patients who will take our folders of information and share them with some of their providers, so they see what we have to offer. And it's not it, it's not in any way um, uh, 
you know, saying that the provider wasn't well informed or did, if anything, it's a service to them to know that we have these resources available for patients and for them. So we really appreciate when patients do that for us. Oh, that's great. I, I hadn't thought of that. That's a great idea for patients to do. That's great. Um, and and you, something that you touched on kind of in passing when we were talking about that was grantees. Mm. And I know that we help to fund early career researchers um, who are at, uh, addressing potential knowledge in aplastic anemia and myelodysplastic syndromes and uh, acute myeloid leukemia and um, paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Why don't you why don't you share a little bit about that about how um, we really help get these researchers off the ground? We're the only organization that offers research grants in bone marrow failure disease. And the we started the program. The first grant was awarded in 1989, so we're approaching our 30th year of, of our research grant program. And the, the relatively modest sum in terms of large research grants can be a key factor in some of these young investigators getting a start in the field. It can be very hard for a new investigator, you know, early in their career to get major research grant funding. They kind of have to establish a track record or some progress. And in many cases, the grantees that we've funded over the years have had an idea, uh, you know, a relatively small-scale research project that they wanted to pursue. And in reviewing our applications, we we give priority to young investigators because our medical advisory board knows how very difficult it is to get that initial research money. Wow. And what's happened in many, many cases is that this has been the start of their career in bone marrow failure research, for one thing, but also it it, it has led to significant discoveries in bone marrow failure understanding and led to other research and importantly for the the grantees led to other research funding and in some cases millions of dollars from national institutes of health or other major foundations or it's led them to uh, ultimately have their own research laboratory in major medical institutions and that's a significant role for our funding to make that much of a difference in the career of of our grantees because it, it's the start that got them into the field and let one thing led to another and much more funding came to them and for the research. So one example of that is uh, Matt Walter, who's at the Washington University in St. Louis. And he, uh, re- he has received a couple of grants from us over the years, but he credits his the first grant that he got from us for leading to a major discovery in in the the uh, genetic understanding of MDS oh, wow. and how it progresses. And in fact, we wow. have an interview with him. I believe it's on the YouTube channel. But he, you know, he directly attributes his the start of that research to our initial grant that we provided for him. And um, we've we've had. 
uh, Dr. David Areton, who's a specialist in PNH or paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. He's at NYU, and he is a, a major expert in the field, and he has received a couple of grants from us, one when he was a younger investigator and more recently with some uh, progress that he's been making in, in the understanding of PNH. And then uh, another example, and this is a very interesting situation, Dr. Lisa Minter from the University of Massachusetts Amherst got interested in the field of bone marrow failure research when she herself lost a child to aplastic anemia. Oh, dear. And she yeah. she was a physician, but then she decided to, you know, devote her research career to aplastic anemia. And she's received a couple of grants from us as well. So it's a come and, and most of the grants that we have funded have been like lab research or uh, affecting clinical trials or, you know, uh, genetic uh, focus. But one other one that I would draw attention to uh, affected it was uh, uh, developing a tool for assessing quality of life for MDS patients. And that was to uh, Dr. Greg Abel, who's at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And he used that seed money to start the process of developing this tool to assess quality of life. It's a, you know, a multi-question uh uh, survey and then it's it's uh, the same questions are asked over a period of time, and it, that has evolved for him getting much more additional funding from uh, the uh, the Department of Defense Bone Marrow Failure Research funds and some other patient oriented federal funding, and it all started with our grant that helped him develop the first the first edition, so to speak, of this survey that now is becoming a, you know, a, a true quality of life measure for MDS patients. So that's not lab research, but it's right. certainly, uh, you know, is paying attention to the, the, uh, the needs and, and concerns of patients. Wow. That, that's amazing. I'm I'm so impressed. <laughs> and, and it is impressive when we see the, the grantees that now have their own labs and, and uh, we've we funded international grantees, so it, it's been a truly amazing uh, progress that we've made through the years, through the thirty years of research. That what what may seem modest funding in the grand scheme of things has been the seed money that has helped these researchers to grow their careers and for us to develop the much much improved knowledge of bone marrow failure. That's wonderful. Wow. Just a, a, a little bit has started launched breakthroughs, and eventually it will get there. Yes. That's, that, that's what's encouraging about to see that over, over time and how that has evolved. Well, that's great. Well, you know, Alice, I so appreciate the time that you've spent with us today sharing, sharing about what you do, about what the foundation does, um, in a different way to affect the lives of, of patients all over. Um, thank you, everyone who's been listening today to, um, to paying attention and to listening and, and share this with your doctors and with your families. You can, you can share this with everyone. Just follow the link. Please also don't forget the support services that AMDSIF offers. Use our helpline at 800-747-2820, option 2, 
to get connected to our peer support network and our community support groups. And don't forget us online at aamds.org. Be sure to listen for future podcasts where we'll be covering both general and highly specialized topics, all to assist patients and families in coping with bone marrow failure disease in the best way. We'll see you next time.